So the vast majority of this morning's message is going to focus on explaining the context, the background, the fulfillment, how it would have shaped the mindset and the worldview of the peoples with reference to the Christ of the prophecies, the prophecy that is fulfilled in verses 4 and 5. Look at it again. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. When we come to Matthew 21, we are entering into the final week of Christ's earthly life. And we're going to see Matthew repeatedly, either directly or indirectly, reference numerous Old Testament prophecies that are either discharged, that are discharged and satisfied in our Lord's life and work. And you'll notice in verse 4 to 5, the prophecy is just stated without any sort of explanation. And the reason for that is Matthew's intended audience is a Jewish audience, one that would have been familiar with the words of the prophets when they are addressed or when they are quoted. But the context for us who are not Jewish readers, who are not as steeped in the Old Testament and the prophetic word as the Jews were in this day, needs a little bit of context in order for us to help to understand what it means. It's a testament, really, to the sovereign oversight and commitment of God to the effecting and assuring of the salvation of His people. So we're going to focus on those two verses. That's the lion's share of the message, understanding the context, the background. So if you want, at this moment, flip back to Zechariah chapter 9 and just keep a, your finger in there because we're going to spend a little bit of time in there too. The late pastor and theologian Dr. R.C. Sproul once wrote, if there is one single molecule in this universe that is running around loose and free of God's sovereignty then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled, end quote. What he means, and rightly so, is that if the Lord is not in full and complete and total control of every single aspect, component, part, piece, speck, and sliver of creation from the largest planet suspended in its particular place and revolving at its distinct pace, right down to the tiniest atom, right down to the subatomic particles that bind together to form everything we see, then the Lord could not, cannot, with any degree of confidence, give us promises that we can cling to in any sort of solid, trustworthy manner. If God is not sovereign over absolutely everything, then He cannot make promises to anyone that when we hear them might inspire belief beyond any shadow of doubt. Because if there are any features or details, even the most seemingly trivial, even the most seemingly insignificant, even the most minor of details, if there are any over which God does not exercise complete rule and reign, whether by his permission, his decree, or his ordination, then that means that there are certain aspects of the created order that exist outside the rule, reign, and control of the Lord. Outside of his dominion, may it never be. Because if the Lord is not supreme in his jurisdiction over all of creation, then perhaps he is not fully able to manage, supervise, or direct his creation to his desired or intended goal. 
And if that's the case, then we can never rest fully assured that he possesses the power to actually keep his word. But when we read Scripture, when we read the precious jewel that is Scripture and note the relentless drumbeat of fulfilling His promises, we know, based upon our reading, that the Lord can and He does keep His Word because He does indeed sovereignly superintend over all of His creation, bringing it and moving it to fulfill His purposes, His promises, and His prophetic pronouncements. When we note the prophetic word that is brought to pass in Matthew 21, verse 5, for example, look at it again. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This ought to, it does for me, inspire our confidence in the Lord as we look back at everything the Lord has accomplished on the global stage in order to bring about this moment, in order to bring about this day when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey in the exact manner prophesied over 500 years earlier. The prophet whose word here is fulfilled is none other than Zechariah. And the prophetic word quoted comes to us from Zechariah chapter 9. And so we're going to spend a long time understanding the context of Zechariah chapter 9 because it forms and it shapes and it helps us to understand why the crowds at one moment are saying, Hosanna to the son of David, and the next moment they're saying, Release to us the criminal Barabbas. It's because of these texts and the fuller context behind them. So to whom did Zechariah originally speak these words? He spoke them to Israelites returning to Jerusalem after seven decades of exile. After 70 years living outside of the promised land, scattered throughout the Babylonian and Persian empires. Among this group of, returning, of Hebrews returning to Jerusalem by the decree of the Persian king Cyrus was the young man Zechariah. And as 40,000 plus Israelites re-entered Jerusalem, they began or they launched into the work of rebuilding the temple, the temple that had been destroyed by the Babylonians, only to see it halted by adversaries who worked to discourage the labor, who bribed the city officials to frustrate their efforts. And so this time of great excitement among the Israelites as they return and begin their work gave way to a season of discouragement. The people grew dis increasingly disheartened by their circumstances because the work of rebuilding the temple halted for 16 years. And a few months before Zechariah's ministry among the people began, his contemporary, the prophet Haggai, Encourage the people. And we read it in Haggai chapter 1. It says this, Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of King Darius. So here, 20 years after the initial surge of Hebrew returnees jubilantly came home to Jerusalem in 520 B.C., they examined the state of their homeland. 
And these, both knowing and hoping in the words of earlier prophets, those like Zephaniah, who was the last prophet before Israel went into exile, declared the Lord's plans for Israel's future, saying in Zephaniah 3, verse 20, At that time, the Lord will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before their eyes, says the Lord. And so you've got the situation that is being experienced by the returned exiles in Zechariah's day, and you've got the promises of the Lord that has been made to Israel future, and the two things weren't aligning. They weren't measuring up. The, the Israelites saw Jerusalem, and it fell far short of the glory days that God had promised. It fell far, fell far short of what Israel had experienced under the rule and reign of King Solomon, the days of the united kingdom of Israel. And even after the temple was rebuilt, the Lord, through the prophet Haggai, revealed to us or declared to us that the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace. So the Lord made a promise to Israel that the glory of the temple will one day be greater than that even experienced when Solomon's temple stood. But when those who returned to Israel, who had seen the first temple that Solomon had built by now really well advanced in years, and they looked at the foundations that had been laid for this new second temple, Ezra tells us, they wept with a loud voice because it's so, it's so paled in comparison with the first. It is to these disillusioned, sorrow-filled people, to these gazing at the ruins of their once glorious capital city that Zechariah speaks. You see, Haggai exhorted the people to rebuild the actual physical temple, and Zechariah called on the people to repent and return to the Lord as they rebuilt the temple. The Lord comforted the Israelites through Zechariah, telling them that the promises he has made to them will come to pass. The promises that have been made to them through the prophets still stand. They will come to fruition. Why? Because your God loves you. Your God is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and He will console you. He will soothe you. Now return to the Lord and live in the light of His promises and rest secure in the future fulfillment of those promises. That's how we live, right? We read the New Testament and we see the promises that God has made to us of an eternal life of joy with Him by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those promises produce in us and promote in us hope as we live in the world right now. The same thing was designed or meant to happen for the Israelites. God is for you. He is going to work in you. He will bring about the fulfillment of His promises to so live in hope now. These are the promises that those Israelites in Christ's day clung to with great tenacity. This is why, after the feeding of the 5,000, John tells us that the crowds tried to make Jesus king by force because they wanted him to enact all of the prophetic words in the minor prophets and in the major prophets. This is why, as Jesus entered Jerusalem during the Passover week and the crowds following him, and following behind him, as we see 
in chapter 21, verse 9, started to cry out, Hosanna to the Son of David. And as these crowds chanted out or cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, what was the response of the city of Jerusalem? Look at 21.10. The whole city was stirred up. That means, the word means, the whole city quaked with a wild excitement. Jerusalem was in an uproar. These crowds, as we see in chapter 21, verse 9, they went before Jesus and they followed behind Jesus, shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna! And these crowds, how did they form? These crowds were humongous. We are entering Jerusalem during the Passover. Jerusalem is more busy during the Passover than any other time of the year. How did these crowds get here? Well, there's a little bit of a timeline we can understand here. These crowds formed as Jesus, on his way to Jerusalem, stopped in Bethany to visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. You read that in John 12, verses 1 to 3. Jesus came to spend some time with his friend whom he had recently raised from the dead. We read it in John chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And John will continue in verse 9 saying, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. It is this very crowd gathering in Bethany to see Jesus, who had just raised Lazarus from the dead, who John 12, 12 to 13 tells us, the next day heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. You see, these people were so familiar with the promises of the Lord by the prophets. This is why these same crowds throughout Christ's ministry were so relentless in their search for Messiah. Not Messiah as he was going to come the first time, but Messiah as they understood him and wanted him to be, the political liberator who would free them from oppression and power, uh, the, the power of their current Roman overlords. These Israelites pined. They longed for. They ached for the fulfillment of the prophetic words of God that had not yet come to pass in their midst. And when you look at the fuller context of Zechariah 9, where the word fulfilled in Matthew 21.5 is originally located, you will see that the, the, the prophetic word here actually builds upon a number of other promises that give context for us to understand. In Zechariah chapter 8, we learn that God remains jealous for Zion, that he will return to Jerusalem, that Jerusalem as a city populated, will, will become once again a city populated by Hebrew peoples and will once again know peace and prosperity. We see that the Lord will reverse the scattering of Israel. We see that he will show compassion to Jerusalem. And then when we come to Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, we, the words that immediately precede the prophetic promise fulfilled by Jesus in Matthew 21, we see the Lord revealing his power and his sovereignty past present, and future in judgment against the enemies of God's people along with the nations that arrogantly think themselves self-sufficient, those nations that thumb their nose at the Lord, 
Those nations that believe by the work of their own hands, they, ex- they can exist apart from the blessing of the Lord. Such arrogant and foolhardy nations. But also, the Lord will reveal His power and His sovereignty in calling the nations to Himself, in including the nations and incorporating them into His very own family of peoples. And in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, the Lord prophesies the arrival of the king of Jerusalem. This is the pinnacle promise of the Lord to Israel. This is the focal point of creation's history. The one to whom all things point, the one from whom all things flow, the king who will at some point in the future bring rejoicing to ethnic Israel as they finally recognize and embrace him from, for who he truly is. This is their legitimate king, their legitimate lord, their legitimate savior. This is the king who is endowed with salvation, who brings to himself a people from every tribe and nation and tongue and language. He is the king whose rule shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. And when you get to Zechariah chapter 9, you see clearly the sovereign power of the Lord to bring about the judgment of Israel's enemies and the salvation and their salvation also. So you look and hopefully you've got your Bibles open to Zechariah 9. Look at Zechariah 9, 1 and 2. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on all mankind and on all the tribes of Israel and on Hamath also, which borders on it. So earlier prophets had pronounced words of the Lord's judgment against these historic enemies of Israel. For example, you go back to Isaiah 17.1, you will read this. Behold, Damascus will cease to be a city, and it will become a heap of ruins. And again, in Jeremiah chapter 49, we read this. Concerning Damascus, Hamath and Arpad are confounded. For they have heard bad news. They melt in fear. They are troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. Damascus has become feeble. She has turned to flee and her panic seized her. Anguish and sorrows have taken hold of her as a woman in labor. How is the famous city not forsaken, the city of my joy? Therefore her young men shall fall in her squares and all her soldiers shall be destroyed. In that day declares the Lord of hosts. So you see, the Lord's judgment against these enemies of his people is a certainty. He doesn't speak as though it may happen or that it's out of his control, he says, this will happen. Damascus will fall. Damascus was a city in Syria during the days of King Ahaz, king of Judah, and Damascus sought to wage war against Jerusalem and even brought in the king of Israel, at this time Israel and Judah are separated, brought the king of Israel to do, uh, on his side to do so. And the people of Jer- Jerusalem were in great fear as a result. Isaiah records this. In 7 verse 2, he said, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, Ephraim being shorthand for the ten tribes of Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. But the Lord comforted Ahaz through the prophet Isaiah by pronouncing judgment against Syria for their arrogant attempts to strike fear into the heart of Jerusalem, for devising evil against Jerusalem. And at the time of Zechariah's writing, 
All of these historic enemies of Jerusalem had been crushed. The Lord had fulfilled his promise to Israel. They had all been destroyed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. None of these cities posed any threat to Jerusalem at this point because the Lord did as he said he would do through the earlier prophets. He raised up judgment against Damascus, and how did he do so? He did so by sovereign means. The Lord raised up Assyria to crush those nations. Assyria would later be the arm of God's judgment against Israel when they defeated and dispersed them throughout the Assyrian Empire. And then later, the Lord raised up Babylon to discipline Judah for its sin and rebellion against the Lord. And the Lord also used Babylon to be the rod of his judgment against Assyria. And then the Lord raised up Persia to deal with the sins of Babylon. And then he raised up a king in Persia who decreed and allowed the people of Judah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city walls. Do you see this? The Lord in his power, the Lord by his sovereign decree and oversight, oversees all of these global events and movements. The whole world is shaking with all of these armies disciplining and coming against one another. And what is it all moving to? Why is Babylon being raised up to crush Assyria and Persia being raised to crush Babylon? You know why? So that in Matthew 21, Zion's king would enter Jerusalem humble and on a donkey. All of these global agitations, all of these things where if we were experiencing in them and, and enduring them, we might think, what is going on? All of it occurred so Jesus would ride into Jerusalem humble on this day. The Lord raised up one king and deposed another. Why? Because the Lord is sovereign over the kings of the earth. The Lord sets kings up in order to move forward his own purpose and his own goals. And then when, they are, when his plan for them is done, he deposes them. The prophet Daniel understood this while he and his companions lived in Babylon. It was at a time when King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a dream that no one could interpret. A dream that he was desperate to understand. And the Lord revealed the meaning of the dream to Daniel. And the king asked him to interpret the dream. And Daniel, the text in Daniel chapter 2 tells us, Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed is the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. So you see, the Lord's sovereign control of earth's events from the times and seasons to the removal and the establishment of kings was of great comfort to Daniel as he lived in exile in Babylon. But it wasn't just Damascus 
and the judgments fulfilled in Zechariah's day that prove the Lord's sovereignty over all things. But as we look back on the text, we can see how God centuries later raised up another global superpower, one that he raised, one that he raised up, as he does with all world leaders, to bring about the judgments and the fulfillments of prophetic word that he pronounced, this time upon Tyre and Sidon. Look at verses 2 to 6 of Zechariah 9. Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise, Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. Now, Tyre and Sidon were never actually cities that threatened Israel, militarily speaking. But they were numbered among the enemies of God because of their arrogance and their trust in their own skill, wisdom, and strength. The Tyrians and the Sidonians were frequently prophesied against by a number of prophets in God's word. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, and Ezekiel all prophesy against these two nations, or these two cities. In fact, Ezekiel spends three entire chapters prophesying against these people. Beginning with these words in Ezekiel chapter 26. Here we read, In the eleventh year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, because Tyre said concerning Jerusalem, Aha! The gate of the peoples is broken. It has swung open to me. I will be replenished now that she is laid waste. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and will bring up many nations against you. As the sea brings up its waves, they shall destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her soil from her and make her a bare rock. She shall be in the midst of the sea, a place for the spreading of nets, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. And she shall become plunder for the nations, and her daughters on the mainland shall be killed by the sword. Then they will know that I am the Lord. So you see, the Lord is so for his people that he raises up nations against Tyre. Because they used a fallen Jerusalem for their own gain, rather than assisting the afflicted people of God. And so how did the Lord reveal His sovereignty in these affairs in Tyre and Sidon? Because this nation still stood when Zechariah wrote these words, or these cities still stood when Zechariah wrote these words. And you have to know, the people at this time would have thought it ridiculous that Tyre and Sidon could fall. I'll explain that in a second. But the Lord would eventually raise up the instrument of his judgment against these two cities in a man named Alexander the Great. Perhaps you've heard of him. Some centuries later, he would bring about the destruction of Tyre in accordance with the word of God. Now remember, listen, Tyre was no weak city. Zechariah actually refers to Tyre as having a rampart, fortifications, and being almost impregnable. This city was set on an island a few kilometers from the mainland, 
and surrounded by a double thick wall that was 150 feet high. Now that's really high. And on top of that, they had constant naval patrols guarding the city. And these, along with other fortifications and weapons, meant that Tyre withstood almost anything that came its way. Not only that, but Zechariah 9.3 says, they heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. Tyre was a well-positioned, well-fortified city that raked in cash. And it grew increasingly arrogant and proud and boasted about the impossibility of its ever being captured. Tyre to this point, and listen, as Assyria went through destroying everybody, Tyre withstood a five-year siege upon the city in 722 BC by those same Assyrians. Assyrians laid waste to everyone in their path, but they couldn't take over Tyre. Tyre also withstood a 13-year siege by the Babylonians in 527 BC. Both times, the resources in the city were plentiful enough to sustain them during prolonged sieges. All the fortifications, all of the wealth, all of the resources that Tyre had made them seem unbeatable. And in this day, for Zechariah to prophesy that Tyre would fall after withstanding the assaults of both Assyria and Babylon sounded ridiculous. But the Lord declared. And when the Lord declares, guess what happens? Whatever the Lord declares. The Lord declared through Zechariah and other prophets that Tyre would fall. They would be stripped of their possessions, their naval power would be struck down, and the city would be devoured by fire. And history reveals, history records the rise of Alexander the Great, who as the rod of the Lord's judgment against Tyre, against all odds in 330 BC, sacked the city. He used the ruins of the old city of Tyre to build a road, a massive three-kilometer roadway over the waters to reach the city, blockaded it for seven months, and then conquered it. And from there, Alexander stripped her of her possessions, struck down the city by throwing all the weapons into the sea, killed the inhabitants of the city with the sword, and set the whole thing on fire in accordance with the word of God through Zechariah. Now, Alexander is a towering figure in world history. But when you get right down to it, Alexander was simply a tool in the hands of the Lord to bring about the defeat of Jerusalem's enemies. Alexander, under the sovereign rule of the Lord, was an instrument of God's righteous judgment, and without even knowing it, without even knowing it, he prepared the way for the arrival of Zion's king, You see how sovereign the Lord truly is over global events. How he moves everything towards his intended goal. The judgments of the Lord against Tyre sounded the alarm for the nations around it. Ashkelon, Ekron, Gaza, and Ashdod would see the stripping of the seemingly unbeatable Tyre and be afraid. They will writhe in anguish. They will see its hopes confounded. All four of those were his Philistine cities historic adversaries against God's people of Jerusalem in earlier days. But, said the Lord, my devastating work entire will bring you to your knees. Why? Because the Lord has gracious intentions for them. The judgments against Tyre, for us, if we're to bring it to our own day, ought to teach us that when the Lord says our time is up, it doesn't matter how much money you have. 
It doesn't matter how strong and fortified you are in your own life. All of it is worthless and useless on that day. When the Lord's purpose for a king or a queen or a president or a ruler or a tyrant or whatever has concluded, he removes them and raises up another to keep his plan moving forward. And because of that, the people of God have absolutely nothing to fear. If you are a child of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, when you look out at the world and you see the agitations and the nations and the people being elected and people being deposed and you see wars and rumors of wars and all of those things happening in the world, you have nothing to be afraid of. For you and I, our hearts ought to be so filled with the fear of God alone that there is no room in our hearts to fear anything else. The only sure defense, the defense that is greater than a double-thick, 150-foot-high wall like that of Tyre, is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the source and provider of spiritual riches that are greater than anything we could ever begin to imagine. But if you, like Tyre, are an arrogant enemy of the Lord then an even worse fate than that which befell Tyre will befall you. Everything you have will one day be stripped away and you will be devoured by the eternal fire of judgment. And that is the necessary and just repercussion for your heinous sins against the Lord. And so in the same way that the fall of Tyre was designed to help bring the nations around them to their knees and see that the Lord is God, so may you also see that the Lord is God and turn to Him in faith. Are you like Tyre? Do you consider yourself wise? Do you consider yourself well off, well fortified, well protected? If you are unsaved, the lessons learned from the fall of Tyre ought to sound alarm bells in your mind and in your heart like it did for the cities of Ashkelon, Ekron, Gaza, and Ashdod. For those cities, the Lord declared in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 6 to 7, if you look at it, if you're there, I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. The sovereign rule of the Lord, while it is revealed in judgment against the nations, is also in a greater way revealed in the salvation of the nations. See, Philistia, 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 a historic adversary of Israel, here, according to Zechariah, will one day be incorporated into the people of God when, Zechariah 9-7, the Lord takes away its blood from its mouth. In other words, when the Lord eliminates the abominable practices of this once disobedient, idolatrous, and rebellious people. After the Lord removes the blood and the abominations of the Philistines, they too shall be a remnant for the God of Israel. See, a remnant of the Philistines are spared and brought into the people of God, like the Jebusites that survived Israel's conquest in the land of Canaan really early in Israel's history. They continued to live among the Israelites. 
And so you see, Ekron shall be like the Jebusites in Zechariah chapter 9. Like Aronah, the Jebusite, who offered his threshing floor to King David. You remember that? So that David might offer sacrifices to the Lord. But not only the threshing floor, he also offered the wood and the oxen and everything necessary. Aruna considered himself a servant of King David, and David ended up paying him for the threshing floor, building an altar there, offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, and averted a plague upon the land. So you see, the Lord can, will, and does save even the greatest of his and his people's enemies. The Philistines are a prime example of the Lord's gracious purpose in salvation. The Philistines will be cleansed and shall be like a clan in Judah, that the Lord's sovereignty leads to such an influx of those who were once enemies ought to give us hope and confidence in his power, in his will, and in his desire to save. And as we go out into the world and we minister to the world, as we go out and we minister to enemies of the Lord in the here and now, we all have the option of treating those people in one of two ways. We can treat them like they're our enemies or we can treat them as souls that need to be saved. Because remember, the Lord is in the business of cleansing blood from the mouth. The Lord is in the business of cleansing abominations from between the teeth. The Lord is in the business of adopting saved peoples into his family as sons and daughters. He did it. If you are saved here this morning, that's what he did for you. And so as we go out into the world in the authority of Christ to make disciples of all nations, we must not, we must not look at people as though they are unsavable. We must not look at people as though they are our enemies because, listen to me, they are not our enemies. Worldly references and resources will try to divide humanity and make us seem like we're all enemies against each other, but the Bible says they are not our enemies. The unsaved are those who sadly are deceived by a crafty, subtle, and cunning enemy. There is one who is our enemy the devil himself. Now, how will the Lord bring the Philistines in? How will the Lord make them like a clan in Judah? How will he bring about the cleansing of their sin? How will he save you today? How will he save us in our day? How will he save the vast multitude that he promises to save? How will he save all those who come out of the tribulation in Revelation chapter 7 from every tribe, nation, tongue, and language? He'll do so by the arrival of Israel's king, the one we know as Jesus Christ. And you read that in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from, river, from the river to the ends of the earth. So you see, at the time when Zechariah wrote this, Israel had no Jewish king sitting on a throne leading Israel. It could be classified a kingless era for the nation. 
And so the people are told, look for your king. He is coming. There is one that the Lord himself will send. There is one who fits and fulfills Old Testament prophecy. There is one who fits all of the Old Testament expectations. A just king, a righteous king, a king that has salvation and is coming to Jerusalem in meekness and in humility and in affliction. And there is only one person on the, in the history of our planet that fits this description. And so rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. He is coming. Shout aloud, O Jerusalem. Your king is coming to you. This promise, this promise, like all others made to you by the Lord, is one that he will be both faithful and is most powerful to fulfill. Now, the prophets, when they spoke these texts, they relayed kind of the general contours of the coming king's work. When we read the New Testament, we see the clarity that is given to us in regard to these prophecies. The prophets here, like Zechariah, could not have envisioned or did not envision a second coming of the king. But as we read Zechariah through the lens of New Testament clarity, verses 9 and 10 qualify or are as something we would call a split prophecy with a two-stage fulfillment. Verse 9 is fulfilled at the triumphal entry of Christ as he enters in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday during his earthly ministry, while verse 10 at this moment awaits fulfillment in the future millennial reign of Christ in Jerusalem. So let's look at these verses. Let's look at verse 9. The Lord through Zechariah contrasts the king who will enter Jerusalem with the kings of the world. Now you know that the kings of the world look to consolidate their power. They look to keep their power. They look to gain riches and to gain glory. They rule over people in arrogance. But the coming king who will ride into Jerusalem is righteous and having salvation, meaning that his rule is a rule that comes for the benefit of the people. Jesus didn't come to take anything from you. He came to give to you. He rules for the salvation of his people. Whereas all other kings that have ever ruled and reigned are at best extremely flawed, and even the most benevolent represent the, and reflect the character of God most imperfectly, there is a king prophesied through Zechariah that will be, if you look at Zechariah's words, perfectly righteous, endowed with salvation, and a humble ruler. And who is this king? The New Testament identifies him to us by name in our text this morning. As he arrives in Jerusalem in fulfillment of this prophetic word, humble and mounted on a donkey. Look at Matthew 21, 10 and 11. The whole city stir, was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And so you see, this king, Jesus, is perfectly righteous. See it. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous. That's what Zechariah says. Matthew doesn't explicitly state this word or this aspect of the prophetic word in 21.5, but the Jewish reader would be a well, well aware of the totality of this context. They knew the coming king would be perfectly righteous, endowed with salvation. 
The Lord Jesus Christ conforms to the standard and the criteria of the Messianic King in every way and is therefore qualified to reign from the Davidic throne. And this righteousness that Jesus possesses, we learn from the New Testament that this very righteousness is the righteousness that you and I require if we are to be accepted by and brought into relationship with God. And so this righteous king comes, Jesus comes, born under the law, living a perfect life, fulfilling every single one of its requirements and demands, every single moral and spiritual requirement right down to the very smallest letter. He fulfilled by his obedience, by the obedience of the righteous king Jesus. And here's the wonder of the gospel. When you believe in Jesus, that perfect obedience to the law, that perfect obedience that Jesus lived out is applied to you. It is credited to your account. It is given to you. And when God looks at you, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. For everyone who believes in, the, in Christ this morning, I mean, and when I say believes, I mean who truly believes the righteousness of this king who rode into Jerusalem on this day, has been credited to you. So rejoice and be glad. The Lord has sovereignly superintended over all of creation's history, moving nations, establishing kings and kingdoms, deposing kings, laying waste to kingdoms, in order to bring this about for you. Your salvation by grace through faith in King Jesus. The king is also endowed with salvation. We see that in Zechariah 9.9. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he. Meaning, the coming king is entrusted with salvation. He is the one through whom salvation is secured. He is the one in whom salvation is available. It is his possession. And by his arrival, he brings and gifts salvation to everyone who believes in him. And the focal point of Matthew 21.5 is that this king is a humble ruler. He comes humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The coming king, Israel, will not be like other kings. He will not be like those who rule in arrogance and in pride. This king is the opposite of the worldly tyrant. This king has not come at this point to make war against the citizens of the world. He is no usurper. He is no interloper. He is no foreign ruler seeking to subject you to heavy sanctions and crushing tributes like Assyria, Babylon, Persia, and Rome have done to you. No, this is Israel. This is your rightful king. And he comes to Jerusalem mounted on a donkey. He's not entering the city on a war horse. He's not entering the city on a chariot ready to make war. At this first coming, he has come mounted on a donkey. Why? Because he has come to establish peace between God and man by the offering up of himself, not the crushing of his enemies. And now, during this age of grace, the Apostle Paul proclaims in Acts 17.30 that he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because while Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, at this point, there is coming a day when he will return with that white horse. As we read in Revelation 19, there is coming a day when the heavens will open and behold a white horse. 
one sitting on it, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like flames of fire, and his head on his head are many crowns, which are, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the wine press of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he had a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He will only, however, return this way after securing salvation, after commanding people to repent and believe, and after providing ample time for humanity to respond to that command. That's a future t- day that, that Jesus returns in this manner. But on this day, As Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey, he did so as one who has taken on the form of a servant for the purpose of laying down his life so that his people would live. And Matthew specifically notes the precise time of this prophecy's fulfillment in our text this morning in 21.5. The king of Israel has come to Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy. And I want you to note something. The fact that Jesus does this is for him a dramatic shift in his ministry up to this point. Up to this point, Jesus has been carefully avoiding any public pronouncements about his identity because he knew that they would be misunderstood. He knew that the time of his death had not yet arrived. But as The donkey rides into Jerusalem and people lay the cloaks down in front of him and they cut the branches down and lay them. It is a very specific declaration that Jesus is indeed the king of Israel. This is what Israel's people did, for example, when Jehu was anointed king over Israel way back in 2 Kings 9.13. There we read that every man took his garment, put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and pronounced and proclaimed, Jehu is king! But sadly, Christ's own people, those who have been looking for a king for centuries, ultimately refused to recognize him as their king because they brought Zechariah 9.9 and Zechariah 9.10, first coming and second coming together, and assumed that it would all happen in one swoop. So even as they cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, in 21.9, they are going to renounce that claim quite quickly. On the day Jesus entered Jerusalem, the crowds cried out the words of Psalm 118. Verses 25 and 26. There we read, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what the word Hosanna means. It means help and save, I pray. And so when the crowds cried out these words, they weren't actually seeking the salvation of their souls, but the liberation of their nation. They were crying out for the judgments of Zechariah chapter 9. That's what they most desire. They're wanting the liberation of their nation from oppression in Rome. 
And so as we move through this last week of Christ's life, you will see that as it becomes increasingly clear that Jesus will not gather up an army, at least for the moment, when, it's, when it becomes clear that he is not at this time going to fulfill their earthly hopes, they all in unison shift their cries from Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to release Barabbas to us. Release to us the one who will fight for what we want. We would rather the violent insurrectionist out here making waves and raising factions and bearing the sword against Rome than we would uh, this humble king who is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and remaining silent when the kings are questioning him and allowing people to slap and spit and mock, mock him and flog him. The crowds looked for a Christ to meet and align with their expectations and with, when Jesus didn't do so, they ditched him with lightning speed. Even worse, they sided with the religious leaders who would go on to say, crucify him. You see, what they have ought to have understood and recognized and what we must understand is that Jesus will not, Jesus never adjusts the will of his Father to meet our desires or our wants. Jesus and the Word of God always only promotes, calls for obedience to the will of the Father. May it never be for us who at this moment profess to believe in Christ and shout Hosanna, may it never be that we who look to the God who shook nations to bring about this day, so that all who turn to him in faith will live eternally with him in perfect joy, may it never be that when Jesus doesn't do what we would have him do, or when Jesus makes too many demands on our lives, or when we have to shift and organize our lives in submission to his lordship, that we too would say along with the crowds, I just don't want this. But even on this dark day, when the leaders and the people of Israel sought and secured the crucifixion of their king, this too was a part of God's plan. The king, Jesus himself, understood that as he entered Jerusalem, his being delivered up to death was an act of glory. John 17, Jesus said these very words in his high priestly prayer. He said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you, have given, that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The work of King Jesus the work that has saved all of us who believe. The work that commenced as Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on that day glorified both him and the Father. And as a result of his death and his resurrection, all has been given to the Son. He is the King with all authority. And such a King is worth rejoicing in. And may all you who believe in him truly cry out with great joy, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And if you haven't put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ up to this moment, I pray that you would do so now and you would join us in the chorus. You would join us in singing. You would join us in crying out with gratitude and thanksgiving. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Father, we praise you, we honor you, and we thank you. We thank you that you are sovereign over all things. And we thank you that while our insights into the way the world works are very small, and we ourselves are very small, and the workings of the world just seem so large, so out out of our control, they can bring us to worry and anxiety when we look to your word and we see that you have been moving it all under your direct sovereign rule to bring about something as seemingly inconsequential to the world as the Lord Jesus Christ riding into Jerusalem on that day on a donkey. I pray that you would inspire us to increasingly to increase trust in you that you would help us to recognize that whatever's happening in this world, whatever's happened throughout the entirety of world history, you've had it under control and you have it under control. And in the same way that you moved everything to bring Jesus to earth, you have made promises to us about what we will experience and the joy that we will have with you in the end. And I pray that that would be that we would live in light of those promises, knowing that you have been faithful in the past to fulfill your promises, you are faithful in the present to fulfill your promises, and you'll be faithful in the future to fulfill your promises. We love you and we trust you with everything. In Jesus' name, amen.